2: Hello everyone and welcome to episode 116, that's 116, of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al?
0: Well, well, uh, we're in the second week of the school holidays <laughs> and I guess the best way to describe me at this point would just be hanging on.
2: Hanging on? Really? Surely it's not that bad.
0: Well, it's just difficult. I'm, I'm trying to structurally edit... Uh, Book four of the Mapmaker Chronicles, Mm. and I'm also working on another manuscript at the same time. And then I have the children, and then I also have, you know, this the general making of the general mortgage payment stuff that needs to be done. So it's just I'm just I'm back to, you know, the third shift, really. Um, Yeah, right. Which is is challenging you know after a period of time and I you know I guess the thing is you know we sit here and we chat every week and I sound very outgoing and chatty and stuff but the truth of the matter is people and here's a deep dark secret I just really like being by myself (laughs) (laughs) I'm an author after all you have to like being by yourself um so I'm just i always get so excited about the first day back at school and I plan my breakfast and I spend time with ProcrastiPub and then I just revel in the silence. So I'm, you know, psyching up for that, I guess.
2: You know what? I absolutely love school holidays. Love, 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 love. Love school you holidays. You love them? Yes, I love them because… Because what, the
0: roads are clear?
2: Yes. The traffic <laughs> is absolutely fantastic and it takes no time to get anywhere compared to, you know, what it does in non-school holidays. So I love school holidays. I think it's awesome. Well,
0: I'm I'm glad someone's benefiting. That's all I can say. I'm sad. I'm glad you're having a good time, Val. I That's am. Excellent. I'm having
2: a good time. It's excellent. really good. <laughs>
0: and what are you up to apart from having a good
2: time? Um, well, interesting that you say that you're doing a structural edit on one of your books because I'm doing a structural edit on someone else's book, oh, uh, yeah. on a nonfiction book. And um, what's been interesting? I mean, it's it's a very good book. Um, and uh, but what's been interesting? And when you do a structural edit, you know, you can also See these bits where the pacing doesn't work, or where these bits need to be moved around, and that sort of thing. And it's interesting because it's chapter one almost the whole of chapter one can go essentially, it starts at chapter two. Oh,
0: so, we talked about this a couple of episodes ago. You remember, I was saying to you when I was that often when I write my fiction, the first draft, yes, um, when I go back to do the edit. Um, I've started in the wrong place. And generally mm. speaking, it, it, it all kicks off somewhere in about Chapter 2. So that's, yes. yeah, that's really interesting. But I, I just think it's Norwich. that whole thing of writing your way in yes. to the story. yeah,
2: And not being afraid to chop off an entire chapter because you want to get the reader straight into it. And So have you
0: told the writer that you're... Lopping off the first chapter. Yet.
2: I'm still finishing it, so I'm about eighty <laughs> percent in. So I will be telling the writer very oh soon. Um, uh, and brace uh, yourself yeah.
0: for the tears, Valerie. Brace no, your...
2: no, no, because it it's such a cracker from chapter two, ah. and and it is a good book, but some bits just need to be chopped, yeah,
0: mm, mm.
2: Mm. or moved around, or something like that. But mm. so it's been interesting. But anyway. Let's move straight into a shout out to Oz Simon, shall we? Oz Simon has left us a review on iTunes. So thank you, Oz Simon. And uh, (laughs) Oz Simon, who I assume is a maybe, I'm not sure, has said, A loving the podcast, Al and Val. On my writing days, you accompany me on my morning walks and get my head into gear before I sit down to the computer. The podcast gives me lots of food for thought and with your interviews with authors always gives me an insight I find myself turning around at some point during the week. Keep up the encouragement. I love it.
0: There you go. Goodness I me. Don't me. I just love the idea of us walking around in people's heads while they." <laughs> Walk, don't you think?
2: Yeah, you know, the other day I was in the car and um, you and I came onto the um, to to the sound system, and it was really weird. I was like, oh, that's just so strange. (laughs) I'm talking to myself, but
0: um, (laughs) (laughs) I don't, I I have to say, I don't, I don't actually. When we talked about, I think it was last week we discussed people who don't listen to their or the week before, maybe we don't, um. People who don't listen to their audiobooks. Audiobooks, Yeah, I no, I'd, I'd have to say, I rarely listen to the podcast.
2: No, well, this is accidental. It was accidental, and it came on, and it was, you know, um, quite quite a little bit of a shock. But How anyway. You sound? It was good, yeah. <laughs> oh, go. I say so myself. I'm just going to pat was, myself was, on the back here. It's a bit of a shock, but you know. But you know, if you do have 30 seconds to leave us a rating or review on iTunes, we'd really be grateful because it certainly helps us in the rankings. So thank you so much to those of you who have done that. Very, very appreciative. Let's move on to the world of writing and publishing this week, shall we? Let's. I wanted to highlight a book that I came across um, and we'll put the link in the show notes but it's called Working on My Novel by Corey Archangel. Archangel, (laughs) okay. (laughs) working on my novel. And it's interesting uh, because when you go to Amazon, if people are very, very polarised, they either get five-star reviews or one-star reviews, the the majority. And um, it's because I think you need to set people's expectations appropriately and uh, people may have bought the book not really knowing what it's about because what it's about is actually a book of tweets from a people book of tweets. a book of tweets from people who have included the phrase working on my novel in their tweets interspersed with you know whatever it is that they're doing at the time kind of showing that they're not really working on their novel they're busy on twitter oh.
0: so <laughs> it's um yeah it's just a book of tweets and it's it's okay you know what the thing i i tend to agree with the weirdness of the of the reviews though, because at no point in the, the at no point in the description does it say that. Yes, that's right. It doesn't say that at all. And if you had said to me what is this book about, I would have said it was about a bloke who was writing a novel and it's, you know, this is about what, you know, what happened yes. while he was doing it. Yeah. But um, you know, cuz all it says is what does it feel like to to try and create something new? How is it possible to find a space for the demands of writing a novel in a world of instant communication?
2: Yeah. It's not a good description of what oh, you're Oh, it's really not a good
0: description. So, I guess yeah. what it does do is tell you how important it is to let, as you say, let people know what they're getting.
2: Yeah, exactly. And as one reviewer has said, um, but at its heart, do you know what it is? Tweets. Just tweets. Yes, yeah. this is an example of assemblage, of making meaning by the wholesale repurposing of existing content. content.
0: All I can say is that Corey Archangel, Archangel, whatever, must be really well connected to get this rubbish into print by a major publisher. (laughs) Jeez, i tell you what, they're not holding back, are they? They're not holding back. This book killed trees. (laughs) Oh, it's just the kind of review you don't want to see on anything that you've ever. Do you actually review on Amazon? Do you leave reviews? I've only left one or two. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I review, I do stars on Goodreads for things that I really love. I don't tend to do a lot because I, I feel, you know, as an author, I really dislike, um, you know, putting a star rating on other people's work. Yes. Um, Because I just think it's, you know, it's it's such a personal thing. And I guess as an author, as a reader, I know how subjective it is. Mm. So as an author, I do know that as well. But it doesn't make it any easier no, sometimes no. to read, you know, what people say but uh, you know you sort of get to a point where you take it all in your straight I don't even look at them that much anymore but um I do feel that um it's such a useful thing to do for an author so uh, I am yes. torn I'm yes. really torn um but I do only you know, tend to sort of review books that I really like of course mm. yes
2: You know, as your mother once told you, if you haven't got Mm. something good to say, don't say anything at all.
0: That's so true, isn't (laughs) it? It does leave you without the ability to say this book killed trees, though, which, you know, I've read books where I would have liked to have left that review.
2: (laughs) Yes. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, I wanted to um, highlight another link. This is from the Atlantic, and we may have mentioned this before, but I just think it's so cute. I don't want to mention it again. It's um a Lots book. We're repeating ourselves? No, but I just love it. Um, it's a book uh, which has been written by a journalist, and oh, sorry. Well, the the post from the Atlantic is called "How to Write a History of Writing Software." And it talks about the book Track Changes, which is the first book-length story on word processing.
0: It's just like... It's who, such a you story, now, who, who isn't it? Who would think? But I'm think. actually, I have to say, I'm actually kind of interested. I don't think we have talked about this before. I'm sure I would have remembered it. <laughs> <laughs> I know we've discussed typewriters at length, yes, at length. over the time. But, um, yeah, I don't... Uh, remember discussing this one but yeah to write a history of writing software fascinating who
2: would think to do that but you know he has discovered that authors like Isaac Asimov and John Updike and John Hersey actually changed their writing habits to adapt to word process word processing technology Mm. do you remember your first ever word processor that you used after you graduated from
0: typewriters um yes I used a um what did i go to i think uh, i think it's the reason i'm such a an apple addict because i think my first i'm just trying to think back but it was i was at a at a um, publishing company and everybody switched over from typewriters to computers at the same time you know overnight practically mm-hmm. and it was i was a, probably about 18 19 Right. When I used one officially and it was um because you know, we used to do computers at school. Yes. Remember that? Yes. <laughs> you had to go and do your one hour of computers a week and we all had to sit in the and it was all about um it was all sort of, you know, it was so complicated because you had to use all the different little codes and things to yes. and um I remember thinking this will never take off
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> and then I and then we started at the publishing house I was working at. We started on Macs mm. and it was just – it was a whole different world because, you know, the interface was just so much easier yeah. and there was none of this, you know, coding and, you know, double double returns and God knows what else we were doing. Um, so, yeah, I, I'm pretty sure. And I, and I have literally bought Apple computers ever since.
2: Wow. Okay. Because
0: I, I think because of that, it's just that that was where I started and that's where I stopped.
2: The first uh, – I think I was – my first computer was an Apple E, mm. which my dad bought, and uh, we used a word processing thing on it called Zardax. I don't know if anyone remembers Zardax. Zardax. Yep. Z-A-R-D-A-X. So if anyone remembers it's Zardax, tweet me or, you know, let me know. And then we eventually moved on to – he used Zardax for ages, but eventually I got a PC and got onto Word WordPerfect, So I I loved WordPerfect. I used WordPerfect in, you know, all my little part-time jobs that I had during the summer and stuff like that. And eventually I moved
0: to Word and I was like, oh, my God, this crap's all over WordPerfect. But the thing that really surprised me was that I'd used Apple's, like I'd used Mac's all three of those formative years when I was doing my sort of cadetship and everything. And then I went to London and we used Max over there. I was at um, Homes and Gardens magazine and we were – and then I came back to Australia and I was uh, at Vogue and we were doing – it was all Max City. And then I went to ACP. And you went backwards
2: to Zyrite?
0: Oh, it was the biggest (laughs) – like the biggest publishing house in Australia and we were using computers that were just – I'd never – they were archaic. Well, get this. I had to relearn the whole thing. It was extraordinary. Yeah, so it was so
2: archaic. They were PCs. We were using Xyrite, you may remember. I did. And, and the thing is, I because I also worked at ACP in Singapore for three years, but what happened was they shipped over all the old computers from Australia. To Singapore? <laughs> to the Singapore office. So we had even older computers there when I was there. You're kidding. (laughs) Oh, I don't think any of them had hard drives.
0: No, they were, it was. It was really it was it was it was like a time warp, wasn't it? It was just yeah. like going backwards in time. time. Extraordinary. Anyway. Okay, well,
2: we're going to have walk down Memory Lane. We should move on. No, we should. <laughs> yeah,
0: listen to us. Blah blah blah
2: from blah. From in P- my day, yeah, in my day, from PR Daily, uh, they've got a post on commonly misused or misspelled words, hmm. and there's some interesting ones here because these are ones that I see quite frequently, and I'm sure you do too. Um, <laughs> one is is the use of per se. You know um, when you say, "Oh, I wouldn't say that I, mean, I wouldn't do that per se or I don't even can't even think of an appropriate sentence now, of course, I'm so focused on the I smelly. wouldn't say that
0: per se. <laughs>
2: no, that's not a really appropriate. Sentence, <laughs> <is it>? <laughs> <laughs> Here I am thinking on the fly, but people <sighs> often write per se as in P E R Say, oh. but of course it is course. per, and then se per se, oh. right? Okay. And another one people often get wrong is, oh, what are you going to do to wet your appetite? And often wet is spelt incorrectly as wet, oh. as in wet, but it is in fact w h e t. Mm-hmm. So there's a bunch of things in. It's a, like a little quiz. If you want to have a look, we'll put the link in the show notes at so you want to be a writer dot com dot au, and have a look and see whether um, there are whether
0: you can spot the the right one, the right version. One of my personal favourite is Brussels sprouts. Is the that, number of people that get Brussels sprouts wrong what is. What do
2: they spell? How do they spell it?
0: They leave the s off the end. It's Brussels sprouts. Oh right. Sprouts really? from Brussels as opposed to sprouts from Brussels. Brussels
2: sprouts. Oh, yes, mm-hmm. Brussels sprouts. G-
0: Brussels sprouts,
2: yeah. Yes, you're right. Mm. Mm. Yes, that's a good one. Yes. But anyway, we'll put that anyway. link in the show notes. Okay. okay. Now, the next one's for you.
0: Oh, good. Mm. Is-
2: <laughs> <laughs> Do I know about it? <laughs> you are about to. Uh, okay, this I'm braced. Is- This is from uh, Refinery29, and it's an interesting post by Elizabeth Kiefer who has said, why are we so quick to dismiss romance novels as rubbish? Mm -hmm. Now, the thing is, whether you – read romance novels or not, whether listeners read romance novels or not, they are a massive, and I mean massive, chunk of the market, of the publishing Mm -hmm. market. And, of course, there are entire imprints dedicated to romance. And, of course, um, there are some publishing houses that, you know, wouldn't exist, in fact, probably, without their romance category because their romance is so popular, it drives almost the the whole publishing house. So – and i it often pains me when I talk to some authors who have a certain level of snobby snobbishness <laughs> um about romance novels or even popular women's fiction because who are you to say what is what people should read or or for that matter what people should write? What are your feelings when you hear people do that? Oh
0: Val. You know, my—you're just trying to get me to rant, aren't you? No. You just want me to vent my spleen again, don't you? No, not- no Look, I—I I honestly think I—I I think judging other people's reading material has got to be one of the most useless exercises in the history of the world. I, you know, people—or writing material—all writing material. People—people people read. You know, for lots of different reasons, they read for pleasure. They read for escape. They read for knowledge. They read for you know information. They read for to be to be made to think. They read to not be made to think. You know, it yes. depends on what they what what purpose people read for. And I just think that you know the the beauty of the romance industry, and it is an industry. There's no yeah. getting away from that. But the beauty of the romance industry is that there are so many different Types of novels, and there are so many different authors working in that space. That to dismiss the entire genre with a wave of your hand and that's trash mm. is just, you know, so incredibly small minded. I can't even get my head around it. Um, I just, th- and I, and I also think that you know, why why would people imagine for one, like, what, what makes you better than somebody else? Like, the, the romance writers are doing something incredibly right because Mm. so many people are reading their work and i think that um you know the the best of them good romance writers are just extraordinary like the characterization they use the way they tell a story within the parameters of what their readers expect is incredible because there is such a variety of ways to you know and you think oh my god it's two people you know getting it on how can this possibly be you know varied but it really is and and I think that you it takes a great deal of skill to write a good romance of any type or to write a good commercial women's fiction with romance elements, which whatever way you want to describe it. And I think that um, it's it's a very, you know, it's a very sad thing t- that you would just dismiss the whole entire genre out of hand. And I would point people to there is a terrific website mm-hmm. called Smart Bitches Trashy Books, oh, smartbitchestrashybooks.com, yes. um, which you know, breaks down all the different sort of romance novels, talks about what's what makes them great, what doesn't, rates them, reviews them, is very, very funny. Um, terrific website. Um, have a look at that. And I just think that if you've never – this is the other thing that gets me. Half the people that are dismissing romance novels have never read one. <laughs> They've yeah. never read one. Mm-hmm. And yet there's, they're going to say that, you know, that people like like Nora Roberts, who are selling millions and Resilience. millions and millions of books a year – are trash, mm-hmm. can't write, got no idea, you know. And I just think if you're going to, to work, you know, to think like that, I think you're missing out. Yes. You know, if you can work out what makes Nora Roberts' book so incredibly popular then you're on to a winner as far as I'm concerned.
2: Yes. And if anyone's listening who feels inclined to, you know, feel that there's hierarchies in different genres, I encourage you not to think that way because every genre is valid and you should just every writer should feel that they can write whatever it is that they want to write.
0: Yeah, you've got to write you've got to write the thing that floats your boat, because if yeah. you're not writing the thing that floats your boat, your writing is never going to take off. No. Ever. There you go. Good little rant there. Ow. You just push my buttons. And like, did you see how I did that, everyone? Just responding to my master.
2: <laughs> and let's, let's move on. Moving on. on. Let's move on to our giveaway for this week. We are on our this month we are on our big mega book pack of five books, five awesome books. And you can go to writercentercomau slash win in order to enter. And you have a chance to win Rosetta by Alexandra Joel, Lady Helen and the Dark Days Club by Alison Goodman, The Japanese Lover by Isabel Allende, The Beekeeper's Secret by Josephine Moon, and A Girl's Best Friend by By Lindsay Kelk. So entries close Monday one August. So make sure you get your entries in and you could have this massive five book pack. So writercenter.com.au slash win. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our course, Inside Publishing, gives you a peek inside the complex world of publishing. Created by author of more than 30 books, Pamela Freeman, who also writes as Pamela Hart, the course gives you a step by step guide on everything you need to know about the publishing process and how this should affect your writing, pitching, and submissions. It's essential information if you want to navigate the publishing world and get the best chance for your book success. You'll learn about the copyright issues that will affect you, what territories you need to negotiate for, and how e-books and audio books will impact your income. You'll also discover whether indie publishing or traditional publishing is better for your goals. With our on-demand courses, you can learn in your own time with 12 months' access to all course materials. Find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash publishing. Shall we move on to our word of the week Al? Oh let's I can't wait. <laughs> you say that every week. Well, Maybe I'll one
0: just, day you'll say it with conviction. No, I'm just I'm a big and encouraging co-host. I just <laughs> I like to I like to encourage you in your passions, Valerie. So this week's word of the week
2: is bombastic. Now, I know it sounds like an ex- The word sounds like an explosion Mm -hmm. or a shaggy
0: song, but – Shaggy song? Yeah, you know. Did he have a song called Bombastic?
2: Bombastic? Wasn't that his song?
0: I don't know. I could have it
2: completely wrong. I'm not exactly the world's, (laughs) you know, expert in hip-hop or whatever genre he sings in. I did interview him once, though. Did you? (laughs) Yes. What for? Who for? Uh, who for? That's a good question. Um, I think I was a stringer for an overseas publication and he came to Sydney and um, uh, I interviewed him and kind of hang- hung out backstage along with him and wait for it. I'm ready. Bon Jovi. Oh, is that all in the one thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. in that weekend I interviewed Shaggy, Bon Jovi, Sugar Babes, um, other – other people that I can't remember, they were all blurring into one. Of course, Bon Jovi didn't blur into one. That no, was an no. incredible experience. It was like a whole sort of three day extravaganza. But mm-hmm. yes, that was when I met Mr. Bombastic. But bombastic. <laughs> but <laughs> I, we digress. <laughs> yes. Bombast is an old word meaning material used for padding. And that makes sense because these days, it, bombastic often refers to pompous speech. Mm. So you might say, oh, he had a bombastic way of talking. Mm. Bombastic. So if you're using the word of the week in one of your blog posts this week, do ping us and let us know. We'd love to read it. <laughs> yes, we would. Let's move on then to our... Writer in residence this week.
0: Ooh, and who have you got for us, Valerie?
2: Our writer in residence is Kimberly McCrate. And Kimberly, oh gosh, I mean, she has had great success because she is the New York Times bestselling author of Reconstructing Amelia, which is a book for adults, which is it was super successful and is currently being made into a film starring oh. Nicole Kidman. Mm. And uh, now she's turned her hand to YA and she's released The Outliers. And it's obviously going to be huge because it's already been optioned for filming by a um, by film company, by, by, by Reese Witherspoon's film company.
0: Oh, Reese, yeah. the Reese yeah. effect.
2: Yeah. so we've got the Nicole effect and the Reese effect. Goodness me. So let's have a listen to Kimberly. So, Kimberly, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, for readers who haven't read your book yet, your latest book, The Outliers, can you tell us what it's about?
1: Yeah, it centers on a, um, first of all, it's in present-day Boston. It's a trilogy. It's the first book in a trilogy. It centers on a uh, teenage girl named Wiley who has always struggled with anxiety, but when the book opens, she's in a particularly bad spot because she's lost her mother recently in a car accident. And further complicating matters, she's called upon by her ex-best friend, Cassie, to come help her. And so Wiley ends up following Cassie's cryptic text messages, and they lead her and Cassie's boyfriend, Jasper, into the dark woods of Maine. And on the road, things quickly go from bad to worse, and they finally find Cassie. What's waiting there for them is not at all what they expected. Um, The book, first and foremost, just really a page-turning mystery about friendship and betrayal, but it also has this speculative twist, um, Mm -hmm. and that is about the untapped power of intuition.
2: So how did this idea for the book form? What was your light bulb moment, or was it something that had been brewing over
1: a period of time? I think it really was inspired. um, I did brew over a period of time. That's definitely true, but it was... Initially inspired by my own experiences, I have um, always struggled with anxiety myself and I've always felt really kind of emotionally sensitive to people. And um, my daughter is the same way, and she was from a very young age, like three or four. And I think it was looking at her and that we kind of share that connection. And then I started contemplating the fact that a lot of my female friends seem the same and whether there was something more to all of this. So that was really the initial spark for it.
2: And so, um, did you always know from the start that it was going to be a trilogy?
1: Uh, I, did, I conceived of it that way, in three chapters. Um, you know, just kind of going back to something like the hero's journey or something like, like Star Wars, which again is, is an odd example because it's very high sci-fi, which is not what this is. Mm-hmm. If you look, at something like that. Um, how it has three chapters of you know, kind of the the skinny of a Somebody kind of starts back and then a hero rising at the end. It always had that kind of stuff to me.
2: But did you sort of think of the story idea first and then think, oh, it would suit a trilogy? Or did you think, I'm going to write a trilogy next? What kind of story no, could
1: yeah
2: could fit into that? No, so it
1: was a story, story first and then seeing that that story really fit into the three chapters.
2: So when did you know that you wanted to be a writer and what were your steps to
1: get you there um I think it was something I always wanted to do um from high school I was not one of those children who at eight years old had written four four books you know (laughs) in notebooks um sometimes writers are but that was not true for me I didn't write my first short story until I was in high school I really stumped upon because I couldn't find a um which responds to an essay assignment. So instead, I wrote a short story um, in hopes that the teacher would accept it. Um, it was a tale of two cities, and I wrote a story from the perspective of a young French girl. Um, so even then, I was writing from the perspective of a teenager, even when I was a teenager. Um, so uh, that was really kind of the start of it. But I didn't have the courage to pursue it for a really long time. When I arrived at college, people were, I went to a very creative college where people had already published things when when I arrived at college. Mm. Um, So my fellow freshmen. So that wasn't, um, I didn't pursue it in college. Um, It also just didn't seem like a really viable way to make a living. I knew I was going to have to support myself. (laughs) So, which is true. very true. It isn't (laughs) a viable or secure career path. So I pursued other things. I ended up in law school. And it wasn't, I was a practicing lawyer for a few years. It occurred to me that if I didn't, Make a, you know, really drastic change that that was just going to be my life and it wasn't making me happy. Um, so from there, I took a little absence, wrote my first book. Um, the good news about having a job was I could take a of absence. Um, uh, but that first book didn't get published and I ended up giving myself a different deadline, which was a decade. And in that decade, um, I wrote, um, four. More um, or three more unpublished books. I had a a total of four unpublished books. Um, I published a couple short stories, took a bunch of classes. Um, But really when I set the right which was my fifth book, um, it was the first book that ended up getting published but it was my fifth completed book. I really was thinking I was going to find a job and it was the fact that I didn't find a job that led me Hmm. to actually finish reconstructing Amelia. So I was one of those lucky people who got lucky by not finishing, not finding a job.
2: So in that decade, did you work as a lawyer during that time or did you uh, concentrate on your writing?
1: No, I only wrote. The really lucky thing for me, and I think this is important for um, people who are trying to write now, and there's lots of ways to make writing work um having a day job, you know being a teacher and having summers off like there there's all sorts of ways um I was lucky enough that i um my husband was willing to support me, so that's also another way like somebody who's willing to support me financially it was you know again we went from uh, say I earned a very income and I also had hundreds of thousands of dollars of debt um mm-hmm. for being a lawyer, so it was a very um generous thing to support me um we didn't have children at that point uh we did end up I did in that decade, um, we did have two children. So I took the lead in taking care of them, which, to be honest, wouldn't have been what I would ordinarily have really done <laughs> to, you know, kind of take care of them and ended up... We did have childcare, and in later days we, we supported... We got more childcare, so I would have more time to write. But in um, very early days, I wrote, you know, when they were newborns, when they were napping, I got up at 4 o'clock in the morning, I fit it around that. So for me, that actually was kind of a bit of a compromise, kind of taking that role of, of leading, you know, taking care of them so that I could write.
2: And so during that decade you wrote four novels which were unpublished and did you oh, – what kept you going for a decade?
1: Yeah, it was – I mean, there were definitely really, really dark times. I would say I got in that first year when I wrote – you know, I took a leave of absence and wrote a book in a year and got an agent in that first year, I think that was extremely fortunate, Mm -hmm. because uh, that was extremely encouraging. Um, So not only did I get an agent, but I came very close to selling that first book. And I think, as most most writers know, you can live on the active projections (laughs) for years, you know? So I had a lot of, she's incredibly talented, you know, can't wait to see what she does next, kind of thing, from editors. So... You know, who knows how much of that was light and how much of that was actual, but, um, I really held on to that. I held on to the fact that I got an agent. Mm-hmm. And I thought, okay, well, I haven't, I, I haven't, you know, writing is so much a craft. I think that we all get better at it over time. The more we work at it, the more we practice. And so I think my theory was, okay, well, I, I don't, I haven't done this really ever. And so if I got this close on the first go round, you know, I would hopefully get better and, and get closer next time. That was really my theory. And um, it wasn't a bad theory. I just had no idea how long the road it would actually be. <laughs>
2: so Reconstructing Amy, which was a success, and it, it was a big success, uh, can you tell us about the break you got in that one? How did you f- find out that that was being published and what did you think at the time?
1: Um, yeah, Reconstructing Amelia was, yeah, so that was the book that I, that I started working on. Um, and, you know, my my agent, I think at the time, again, I was deep into trying to find a job. So I was really focused on that and just kind of completing it. And she said, you know, I think I think we might actually, you know, she kind of goes out in a very peace. I had another agent. So so that first agent and I parted ways after um, I wrote a second book for him. He... he didn't want to represent. And it was a really bad book. <laughs> um, so we parted ways. Um, and I had another agent who represented, I guess, book three and, uh, she was leaving the world of agenting. And then I ended up with agent number three, who is now my agent, Marley Russoff. So she, um, then tried to sell my fourth book and could not. So, but when book five came around, she was like, I really we have something here. And she had a lot of debts along the way, et cetera, that we worked on. But, she said, you know, I really think this is it, and I, i was very, very skeptical, <laughs> because I felt like I had, you know, kind of hurt her before, and she, I guess, sent it out, and again, I was still pursuing these jobs, and I was actively interviewing, and actually 20, I guess 48 hours, um, before Reconstructional went to auction, I got my, um, I finally got a job offer, um. <laughs> And so she said, yeah. And so I said, can I have 48 hours? Because I think actually my book is going to sell. Oh. But she said, you know, I think, um, you know, when you have an auction, you have, you have interest from, from multiple publishers, but you really don't know. And auction, you know, I'm sure as you know, but you, you your agent kind of sits in a room, no one turned up. You mm-hmm. know, and she just sits there and she receives phone calls or emails that offer mm-hmm. on the book, and it becomes an auction because there's more than one offer. So then she'll say, you know. All right, everyone, give me your best offer, or whatever. It's a way of kind of figuring out. You don't necessarily go with the publishing house who offers you the most money. You, you know, it's a combination of things. Um, so, anyway, she she had good, strong indications from a couple of places that they were going to make an offer, but you really don't know until that day. I mean, they can say they're going to make an offer and then not call that day. I mean, that's yeah. the reality. So. Um, so it really wasn't until headed act. We actually had, I think, one offer in hand that I felt like, oh my god, like this is actually we have an offer. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's official because we could go with that one. <laughs> yeah. um, and it ended up being five or six publishing houses I it on. I don't remember. Um, and yeah, I went with Collins.
2: So reconstructing Amelia. I'll just correct myself there. And the second book, where they found her which starts with the body of an infant found in the woods. Both start quite darkly and and of course reconstructing Amelia is about a mother who goes to her child's school to find that she's the child has jumped from the building but then gets a text saying she didn't jump. Have you always been fascinated with mystery and sort of the darker side of things or crime?
1: Um I think so. Um, you know, I wouldn't say... I think that I, I write books to kind of answer a question for myself. And I would say the question that started with Amelia was, I have daughters, and it was kind of like, how, how are we going to make it through this? And <laughs> <In> that <laughs> piece get, getting them to adulthood. Um, and so, you know, particularly about, you know, is about cyberbullying and technology, for me, that's really a secondary issue. That's like a plot issue. For me, the heart of it is... is you know, how you can be so close to your daughter. The reality is that they're, they're supposed to be keeping secrets and they're trying to figure themselves out, and it's a lot more complicated than just make sure they tell you everything because they don't tell you everything, and that's correct, and that's part of life. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was really what I was curious about there, and where they found her was about really about the, the weight of history and how, how we go on to, to deal with our own history, our history with our own parents, how we process that and go on to have children of our own. So you can see kind of, I, I don't start from a place like, let me write about a crime. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the mysteries of the way I explore those really kind of emotionally layered questions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am for sure kind of fascinated by, by real crime and why really do like, a domestic suspense, I don't know if that's um, a term that you guys use, but sure. um, this is why, why people do things to people they love, do and don't do things, mm. um, and how they justify those things to themselves and uh, the why. Um, that's, that's really interesting to me.
2: So Reconstructing Amelia is being made into a movie, um, I believe, with Nicole Kidman. Uh, yeah. Did you ever think that that would happen?
1: No, I mean, yeah, you, know, you always you always dream of of that, I guess. Um, you know, you know I, I've been a long time ago not to think or to expect anything in the world of writing, but um, it's obviously a a fantastic, exciting thing. So um, yep. I'm thrilled about it. I would definitely wouldn't say it was something I expected.
2: So let's move on to the outliers. Why did you decide to write for a different age group this time?
1: You know, I really didn't. Just, that was, and also wasn't really a decision made. I just kind of had the book I wanted to write, and you know, with Where They Found Her and Reconstructing Amelia, there are adult narrators in the book. And with my very little knowledge of genres and uh, YA versus adult, we there was a point at which kind of people there was some wondering whether or not Reconstructing Amelia was YA. Um, people sometimes think it is. So my agent and I had been told that if there was an adult narrator, it's not YA. Um, Now I don't even know if that's really true, but that's (laughs) what was our our thinking. And my agent doesn't represent YA, like i you know, doesn't really doesn't really do that. So that seemed like okay, reasonable enough to us. So when I went to write a book that didn't have an adult narrator, Mm. (laughs) excuse me, I thought, um, okay, well then this was YA. Sure, to me. Um, and there's also nothing in it that is, on its face, inappropriate. Really, from even younger ages, um, there's just I mean, there's nothing really graphic. It's just the way the story is. That isn't something I sat down, and thought, let me write, not include uh, a lot of things. So I, like, I check myself on the language occasionally. There are some, some bad words, but not nearly as many as there <laughs> are in my adult books. Um, I just really made myself be more vigilant at being sure that the words were necessary when they were used. Um, that was the only way in which I kind of altered anything. Um, you know, I, I, it just to me the stories that that are written in young adult are some of the best that are written of any kind. Um, mm. They're you know compelling and layered, and um, so it's me and obviously so many adults read YA. So, in um, addition to that, so many teenagers read adult books. So mm. there's a lot of fluidity there. So I, I don't. I, I did have this moment where I was like, okay, no adults, so this is YA. But that was really, I mean, again, that's, it was kind of just a little bit arbitrary. But I do love that it's published into YA because I think that it gives you kind of immediate access to a teen audience in a way when you have an adult book. I think sometimes it has to find its way to teenagers um, in, a, in a less direct way. Um, mm. So I think that can be... That can take longer.
2: You said that you had mapped it out in your head, the three chapters, so to speak. So does that mean you, in with your other books as well, that you plot out your stories before you start writing or do you at any point just see what happens?
1: No, I don't outline anything. And when I say map out the three, I mean I said myself, book one is about this, book two is about this, book three is about that. That is the kind of mapping out. And then I wrote that piece of paper. Um, it was not it's not very detailed. Um, right. It's a more conceptual mapping out. I did not outline anything in advance. Um, I have I never have I wouldn't know how to that. I wish I did. Um, there have been times that I thought I should outline this, but <laughs> I, I just I can't um, I think it would save me time. Mm-hmm. I think it, I think both approaches work equally well. It just depends on what resonates for you. And for me, I, I don't know how to sit in a room and figure out my story without writing scenes.
2: But don't you, um, so, aren't you ever scared that, you know, it's not going to, it's not going to find its way in a good direction?
1: Oh, well, yeah, because that happens yeah. all the time. You know, I, I think it, it doesn't really find its way, not fully, um, but I, I do think that in many, you know, so I will have all I'll have kind of gone down a, a, a path as I'm writing. I never look back as I write the first draft. I just keep going. So I can not even have a day where I'm like, wow, that was the wrong direction. <laughs> like I can know at the end of the day that that was just that, <laughs> not going to make it into the book. But in, sometimes when you go back to those places where you took a wrong turn and you even knew you were taking a wrong turn, you'll find something in there that is ends up critical to the book. mm um, so I, I find that it's a really careful balance between putting on your editorial hat and being really vigilant and, and whatever, and also just trusting this kind of unconscious part of yourself. For some reason, you went down that wrong path. And why? And you can sometimes find, not always, sometimes it all just goes in the garbage, um, but, but sometimes you'll find something in it that um, becomes a critical, answers a critical question for your book. So as a result... You know, if you do this method without wildlining, the book you have, the draft you have at the end is a mess. Mm -hmm. You know, like that that's the thing. You have to be able to tolerate and have a lot of faith that you can turn that kind of mess into something beautiful through a process of sculpting it. So for me, like, the the first draft takes three months, but the revising will take nine. Mm -hmm. It's just much more of it is the revising for me. At least you have a whole book to work with. You know, you've got the whole thing there. And to me, that's – to me, the the finishing is more terrifying than writing something back. (laughs) Um, You know, so I think those are kind of better choices.
2: So when you are writing, what is your typical day like? Do you have a routine and and does it differ if you are revising?
1: Um, Yeah, and I write every day from 9 a.m. to 7 p.m. I write my, my job five days a week. Um, and then if there is, um, I often have to extend that and write, I mean, again, the same process I'm describing isn't extremely fast mm. <laughs> because you have go down wrong paths, et cetera. So it, I'm not, you know, particularly compared to a lot of white writers, I am not fast. I mean, I think in the scale of adult writers, I'm average. You know, there's people who write a lot faster than me, there's obviously people who write a lot slower. So. Um, despite working all those hours every day, it's just, that's how long it takes me. Uh, so um, I do end up having to work on weekends and in early mornings, I I wait until I'm really crunched up against the deadline before I do that. Um, so I've always treated it that way, even when before I sold a book and we had to pay for childcare, you know, for me to write books that were not getting sold. I always kind of treated it like a job. You go during these hours, you sit down and you write. And again, when you write by my method... Um, I just keep writing and there's, it's fine. Even if I, you know, some days I write at my assigned time, I write to a page count, to a word count. And even if it may be bad, but I always write. I always write something. It just might, I might just know that it's it's not going where I want it to go. Sure.
2: So what's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you writing now?
1: Well, it's the second book in the trilogy, Mm -hmm. um, of course, because that's due now. That comes out a year from now. Right. So it's that book, and then I'll have to write the third book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and well, you, and you, I'm on.
2: You've got your life mapped out for the next couple of years, then.
1: Yeah, so I'm a little busy, and then I'm under contract write another adult book for HarperCollins. Mm-hmm. Um So that would be after that. And I, I, you know, I would really like to write a, a screenplay of some kind. So I certainly have um, enough work to keep me busy <laughs> at this point. For sure. I reckon.
2: What's your advice finally, to aspiring writers who hope to do what you're doing one day?
1: um I would say, um first of all, obviously, just keep writing. I do what I said at the beginning of being a craft and my own thought that if I kept doing it, I would get better. I think is one thousand percent true um i you know I still find that for myself. I feel like I'm getting better and more adapted at issues in my own work as time goes by, so just keep writing. And I would say that if outlining works for you, great. I I think if you have trouble with things like finishing things or writing a block, you know, I was talking to somebody at an event over the weekend. She said, what do you do, you know, if you can't finish something? And I just said, you just finish it. I mean, you have to allow yourself to write badly. I think that often people have such high standards for themselves. They, you know, compare their work to whatever they, their favorite author, or, and they're like, well, that's terrible. Like, they don't even want to put it on the page when it's bad. But the reality is, all these books, published books you're reading, started out bad. I mean, you know, everybody, the early drafts of books, they're no resemblance to the books when they're finished. So I think it's lower your standards for yourself. Mm. Um, (laughs) So you can get something finished, and then you, like, no one's going to read that that's between you and your computer yep. and just get it finished and then you can worry about turning it into something great I would also say that people should really get great critique partners uh, or feedback groups yeah. uh, and, and I think that's critical I also think it's critical to pick the right people and make sure that they're honest and um, supportive and that they give constructive criticism rather than just ripping your work apart because I think you can Giving good feedback is an art form, um, and not everybody's good at it. Like you have right. to be able to support writers in being the writer they are, rather than putting yourself in there and trying to, you know, either show how smart you are or change the kind of writer people are. You know, mm. so um, I think that's I think that's really critical. I've had great giving me feedback, and I've had you know kind of reckless feedback. So mm. I think that you you got to make sure you get the right kind.
2: Wonderful. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today, Kimberly.
1: Oh, was my pleasure. Thank you for having
0: me. Okay, there you go, Kimberly McRae. What a great story! Like, I, I'm, it's just fantastic. You know, she's written this book for adults that you know Nicole Kidman is going to star in and produce. You know, the movie that for HBO of How reconstructing cool Amelia, which is totally cool. Yeah. And then, sort of, you know, hot on the heels of that, she's now you know written this YA novel which is also getting, you know, huge amounts of attention. And you just sort of think, wow, that's – she's obviously got – it's a voice. It's something that's just really speaking to our time right now maybe.
2: Yeah,
0: absolutely.
2: Mm. Yeah, very, very, you know, very successful. Mm. Well, let us move on to our app pick of the week. And Mm. this is courtesy of Liz. So thank you, Liz, for bringing this to our attention. It's called – Cold Turkey Writer.
1: Mm.
2: <laughs> and you can find it at getcoldturkey.com. <laughs> uh, and we'll put the link in the show notes. But if it's you're the kind of person who is going to get distracted by social media and by other things, and you know, in, instead of writing your novel, and maybe your tweets will end up in a book like the one that we spoke about at the beginning <laughs> it's of not the not even episode. talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this is called the uh, ultimate distraction free text editor. So, it says that cold turkey writer won't quit until you're done, like literally literally will not quit. So what you can do is you can choose to block everything, like block everything in computer. And I made the mistake of testing this out and then my computer was blocked for ages and oh. I had to walk away and go do something else. So you can block everything until a certain number of words are typed, like you might put in a thousand words, mm-hmm. or you can choose a certain number of minutes an now, like you mm-hmm. might pick 30 minutes or whatever. Or you can just say, don't block me, and you can, have, you can just still have the text editor, but you still have the temptation of exiting the, mm. the, the text editor. But mm. when you choose to block stuff, then you can't do anything else until you reach that number of words, which is kind of good if you, if you need that kind of
0: discipline placed upon you. I think the words, I think that that's probably the thing that makes it different from freedom or any of the others that, you know, sort of just lock you out of the internet um, for a certain period of time. So, you know, from the perspective of, you know, write a book with owl continues, hashtag, um, it's, I often do a 500 in 30 challenge, particularly if I haven't got my words done during the day. So a 500 in 30 is, you know, you're basically trying to write Five hundred words in thirty minutes, oh. and you usually you usually find oh it's 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 actually incredibly useful. I mean, people go half an hour. What are you going to do in that time? But if you aim to do five hundred words in thirty minutes, two things happen. You're either going to not make the five hundred, but you'll still have four hundred and thirty-two words in yeah. thirty minutes or something, or you will. You know what I generally find is that if I get on a roll, I'll end up doing. 800 words or a thousand words in 30 minutes you know like just sort of because wow. you know i type quite fast so you know you're bashing it out and it's very much that first draft style writing yes. so we are not creating necessarily perfect sentences here but um it's that sen- it's that notion of getting getting the story down and, and your first instinct with words and your first thought with a, a phrase or a description is often your best and you know yes. you are going to go back and edit and you know you will find like I usually find i've put a word in that was probably at the time I thought was the right word. But when I read back later, I think, oh, actually what I meant was this, mm. um, you know, but it's it's just that sense of getting the words down. So I think for that sort of exercise, something like this would be great because you have no choice but to write those 500 words. Yeah. Um, otherwise, you can't do anything else. And I think that that would be useful. But I would say to people, if you are, you know, struggling to fit the writing into your day, Something like a five hundred and thirty can make a big difference to your overall the overall progress of your manuscript
2: and it seems so achievable in a sense because it just doesn't minutes, sound like much well and and thirty minutes is kind of like thirty minutes doable, is doable. yeah like, even yeah. if you can't carve out thirty continuous minutes, you can have fifteen minutes waiting in the car while you're eating in the kids yeah. school or fifteen minutes yeah. while you're at the doctor in the waiting room or whatever
0: but the thing is also like most people can find 30 minutes. Yeah. 30 minutes, it's not an hour. Like an hour can be very hard to, you know, pull out. That 25th hour of the day is very hard to find. But 30 minutes is such a little window and really what you're doing is about five paragraphs. Like it's not massive. Right. And yeah. so it's not overwhelming and you're not sort of like, oh, I'm writing my novel. Yep. You're not writing your novel. You're writing 500 words. And yep. 500 words just feels like, yeah, okay. But they add up. They, they really do. add up. They do. So Anyway. Wonderful.
2: Cold Cold turkey. Cold turkey. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um, Let's move on to our working writer's tip this week. Mm -hmm. So our working writer's tip, uh, the question comes from Renee and she asks, lately I have felt as though my writing is getting worse. I feel like I struggle to get the meaning across. The words I'm using seem wrong. I'm changing tenses, point of view. Basically, I'm all over the shop. My writing is convoluted and sticky. It never used to be this way. I used to feel like I could write. Writing was an outlet. I had flow and purpose and clarity. Basically, I feel like I've taken a big step back, which is weird since I'm devoting more time than ever to writing. Why have I regressed? Is this normal? To make myself feel better, I've tried to convince myself that like most crafts, after an initial burst of improvement, there is confusion and regression while you consolidate, that there will be improvement if I just keep going. Turn up, as Alison says. Did you guys ever experience this? I'm hoping they're in a, a curve of writing awesomeness and although I'm on a slight downward turn now, as I consolidate all I'm learning, there will be another spike soon is there hope mm. wow great question mm. go on Al. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just people i just want you to take note <laughs> of the number of times that she does this okay <laughs> just everybody keep tab-, tab for me um okay two things going on here mm. welcome to your world as a writer self yeah, doubt is always yeah. going to be present at your table it's yeah. really disappointing and you kind of hope it, there's this sense that you're going to you're going to sort of become so good at this that you're never going to doubt anything you're going to think everything that you do is amazing mm-hmm. it actually seems to work the other way i think <laughs> that um the more time you put into it the more books you write, the more, you know, you obviously are getting better. I mean, trust me, you are getting better. But there is, you're always going to have that sense of the disparity between what you're trying to achieve and what you're actually achieving. And, you know, when you have the idea for a story or a novel or whatever, you have this perfect idea and you're thinking, this is amazing. And then it doesn't matter how many times you review it or how many times you edit it or what you do, but you you just never quite manage to get to that perfection, that ideal of that particular idea. What you do do, what you do realise as you go along is when to let go of it and and when the sort of like your personal disparity between reality and perfection is is as close as it's ever going to be. And I think that that's what happens as, you, as your craft develops and as you go. So you're always going to have self-doubt. Everybody has it. And I think that the sooner you come to terms with that, the better. The other thing is that, I'm assuming, Renee, that you're writing a first draft here, you know, and I think that um, the struggle of getting the meaning across and the words are feeling wrong and all of those sorts of things and you're changing tenses and all that sort of stuff is not stuff that you should be worrying about too much as you're getting your draft down because when you go back and edit your work, you – you will see all of those things much more clearly and you will look at those sentences and you will know what you were trying to say and you will suddenly be able to say it much better. And I think that that's, you know, you have to trust the writing process and mm-hmm. its different to the editing process. Yes. And you have to trust that both of those things are going to come together for you. And, you know, these things take time as well. Like it's, a, you know, I, I, I've i written a lot of manuscripts now and I mean I'm in the middle of this manuscript at the moment and I'm about... Not quite thirty thousand words into it now, so this is the write a book with Al project. If you're if you if you're following that with me, mm. and um, I go through phases with that. Honestly, this one has felt like quagmire <laughs> in many ways. And I and I every time I feel, what am I doing? I have no idea where this is going. I don't know, you know, what am I doing? I have to remind myself that I have felt like this in every other manuscript I've ever written. Yeah. <laughs> um, and you just have to push through that until you get the story down and then you can have a look at it and and see what it is that you can make better and and how to work it. So it, it, it is an ebb and flow situation and, yes, your craft is always going to get better because the more that you do it, the more that you learn, it's all getting better, but you also then start to realise what you don't know mm. and you start to overthink everything. And I think that when you start overthinking a first draft, that's when you get yourself into big trouble. Mm, mm,
2: absolutely. Yep. Great advice.
0: What have you got to add to that, Valerie? Um...
2: (laughs) I think that you're right is that self-doubt is absolutely normal. Mm -hmm. Um, I kind of really resonated with this question because even though self-doubt is normal, there are some times when your confidence is shaken more than normal or more Mm. than just normal self-doubt. And I remember that happening to me, well, many years ago now, but I had gone through a period where, you know, I was totally confident in things like tenses because that you know, or, or even I, if I didn't get it right every time, I knew how to fix it. It was just wasn't an issue for tenses. Were not an issue for me. No tenses point of view. That sort of th- stuff. That wasn't something that I ever had a problem with for many many years. Then some somehow I was really doubting myself on my tenses and my point of view. Exactly the things Renee has actually um, indicated, and I remember now it was. Because I let someone else shake me. Mm. I let someone else rattle my confidence. Mm. I didn't figure that out at the time. I thought I was just being really crap at what I did. Um, you can probably think of who this person was, Alison, <laughs> but <laughs> yes. I let this person rattle my confidence. And yes. I, I was like, how did how did I go from, you know, having 10 years of being completely confident in something as simple as tenses to now – you know debating over every time I needed to write a tense and it took a while to get over that and after when I did and I did Mm. and I realized that that I my confidence was rattled because I let someone
0: else rattle it or something else rattle it it's interesting you say that because I I have to completely agree with you Mm. and also on the same set of circumstances (laughs) And it's very, very true. So I've been—I guess—my confidence um, as a writer has been really shaken twice. Once um, in when I was working in magazines, and I guess the second time was when my uh, first novel manuscript had been accepted for publication, and then you know it it didn't get over the line. It was decided that you know it wasn't going Mm -hmm. to—it wasn't going to work. And I mean, in hindsight, that is a fantastic thing. But at the time. It was uh, very, very difficult because like, no matter what I did, I couldn't seem to fix it. And, I, like, I'm someone who likes to fix things. Like, I yeah, like to get yeah. it right. Like, yeah. I'm really very focused on getting it right. So I found that incredibly difficult. But I think the thing that saved me in that particular instance was that I had written something else. Um, I had continued on. I had written something else. And even as that first manuscript was going through its dying throes of being, you know, eventually rejected, um, this other thing was picked up amidst great fanfare and excitement and the and I began work with a different editor Mm. who was incredibly supportive of what I was doing and I, I think it's yeah so I think you're right it's it's very very important to look at where the problem's coming from Yes. and is it some is it actually you or is it someone else
2: Exactly, exactly right. So let's move on then to our platform building tip this week and that's kind of good segue. You were speaking about the fact that you had that first manuscript in but you had a second one going. Yes. and. This ties into our platform building tip about planning your author career, because so often we um, we meet many writers who are who have written their first novel, who are, who have spent so much time and effort on their first novel, they're exhausted <laughs> by the end of it, and they haven't even contemplated writing another one or even two or whatever. Um, but it is very important, isn't it, to be already planning your author career in terms of planning what your next book is and your next book isn't that right you do and
0: you have to think about it um somebody asked me not so long ago somebody asked me a really interesting question and it sounds like a very simple question but it was a question that I I don't know that I'd ever really given conscious thought to and it was like Alison, what do you want to write? What kind of writer do you want to be? And for someone like me who likes writing all the things um, and, you know, is obviously often writing all the things, it became a very interesting question because um, you have to make a decision at some point about where you're going to focus um, your energy for the foreseeable future. Mm. And so because you're going to submit your novel, your first novel, and the the agent or publisher is going to come back to you and say to you, and this happened to me, is going to come back to you and say to you, okay, this is great, what else are you working on? Mm. So they want to know, uh, publishers, agents, they want to know that you are a person who has more than one book in you Yeah, because, you know, it takes an awful lot to build um, an author name and to promote a book and to do all of those sorts of things and they want to know that if they're going to invest in you, that you are also going to be a long-term investment because one book is not going to make your career Mm -hmm. unless you're happily. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And then look where that went. Um, But generally speaking, generally speaking, um, outside of, you know, some rarities, one book will not make your career. So you need to do the thing that we talk about regularly where you write your novel and you perfected in every possible way that you can and you polish it and you do all those things and then you send it off to submission to all the to wherever it is you're going agent publisher whatever and then while you're waiting and the waiting i've got to tell you we've talked about this before the waiting is an absolute agony yeah you you start something else it's the only way to get through it and it's the only way that when the agent comes back to you and says i absolutely love this what else have you got you say, well, actually, I'm halfway through another book about X, Y, or Z. Um, so think about the kind of writer that you want to be and, and whether or not, you know, you're going to focus all your attention on commercial women's fiction or are you writing literary fiction or what, what sort of author do you want to be? Mm.
2: And, of course, this and other awesome platform-building tips are in Alison's course, Build Your Author Platform, how to build your author platform. Uh, and you can find out more at writerscentercomau slash all right. So we're almost to the end of this episode, Al. What have you got going on in the coming week?
0: Uh, well, I'm going to survive the last few days of the school holidays. <laughs> I'm going to just treat myself to an enormously fat breakfast in complete. Uh, oh. <laughs> when they go back to school. Oh, Okay. <laughs> <laughs> An enormously fat breakfast in complete and utter solitude. Um, yeah. And I'm just going to get on with my writing and my editing and all the things that I have to do despite the fact that they're home annoying me. Yes, yes, mm. absolutely. And you?
2: Um, I've got a couple of conferences here and there. So I'll oh. be living out of a suitcase for a little while. And then I've got a gig in Melbourne that I need to go to and a couple of other jobs. Um, so I've tied them all together in Melbourne. So, yeah, I'll be living out of a suitcase for a little while.
0: Hmm. Well, I have to tell you that at this point in my life, a suitcase looks like a very good thing. <laughs> okay? <laughs> That's all I'm saying.
2: All right. And, and, and I'm thankful for the uh,
0: less traffic on the road. <laughs> all right. So, where do we find you online, Al? Uh, you'll find me at alisontait.com, A L L I S O N T A I T. You'll find me on Twitter at, at Al Tate, A L T A I T. And you'll find me on Facebook and Instagram at Alison Tate Writer.
2: And you'll find me at Valerie Koo, K-H-O-O, on Instagram and Twitter. Just search for Valerie Koo on Facebook and I am the Valerie Koo (laughs) on Snapchat where you'll probably see um, hotel rooms and suitcases.
0: (laughs) Sounds exciting.
2: All right, then. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we look forward to chatting to you again next week. Bye.